Yes, and I'm, well, I'm Fausto Pocar, I'm the president of the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. And I will uh, deal today with the contribution of the tribunal to the development of international humanitarian law. Um, I intend to speak uh, in particular about some of the many contributions of the ICTY to international humanitarian law over the course of its history, which is uh, uh, a 15-year history almost. In 93, uh, the Security Council passed Resolution 827, establishing the ICTY as uh, a response to the wave of horrors that swept through the Balkans in the wake of the collapse of the former Yugoslavia, which it deemed to be a threat to international peace and security. The institution that the Security Council created under Chapter 7 of the Charter was charged with the task of prosecuting persons accused of serious violations of international humanitarian law committed in the territory of the former Yugoslavia since 1991. Um, I wish to stress uh, that uh, not since the international military tribunals of Nuremberg and Tokyo held uh, after World War II had an international court been created to prosecute perpetrators of mass atrocities. In uh, over a decade of existence, the tribunal has indicted 161 persons and only four remain at large. To date, uh, just to give uh, some figures, the proceedings against uh, 111 accused have been fully concluded and there remain active cases before the ICTY involving 50 individuals, uh, partly trial, partly facing appeals. Um, along uh, its way, the tribunal had uh, to overcome some significant uh, challenges to become the fully functioning institution it is today. First, upon its inception, the ICTY was provided with only a skeletal statute. No provision was made for a body of rules of procedure and evidence. The statute, which is, uh, comprises only 34 articles, uh, provides only for a minimal framework establishing the tribunal's competence and the scope of jurisdiction uh, subject matter, personal, temporal, territorial jurisdiction. The statute provides only for specific instructions on the organization of the tribunal and uh, the conduct of trials and appeals, including a list of fundamental rights of the accused, which uh, to a large extent uh, reproduces uh, the list of the rights of the accused in the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. Uh, without adding anything substantial to what already contained in the covenant. Um, 
with regards to procedural evidence, uh, the rules had to be determined and formulated by the newly elected judges of the tribunal. Uh, beginning in 94, the judges worked out a set of rules of procedural evidence that regulated the proceedings in a manner both fair and well suited to international trials. But these rules have been continually revised, amended, as required, uh, by the development of the proceedings, uh, drawing from the experience gained in the course of the tribunal's uh, uh, practice. Um, following the uh, historic precedent set by the Nuremberg and Tokyo trials, the uh, ICTY has sought to combat impunity and impose personal accountability on perpetrators of war crimes, genocide, crimes against humanity under international law. Um, in other words, regardless uh, of the rank or status, uh, persons who commit horrific crimes are no longer able to absolve themselves of the duties the law imposes and uh, from the responsibility which uh, uh, it entails. Um, in the past, failures to punish perpetrators, especially persons in position of authority, only signaled uh, to future leaders that they would also enjoy uh, impunity. Uh, consequently, the insistence of the tribunal on accountability has uh, contributed to alter a culture of impunity and has helped uh, to prevent a recurrence of armed criminal conduct on a massive uh, scale. We have to bear in mind that the tribunal was established when the war was still on in the former Yugoslavia, also as a means to put an end to the war or to make, uh, if I can say so, the continuation of the war more uh, humane. Um, the ICTY has uh, put in place uh, an international criminal justice system that is uh, based on the highest standards of due process. Uh, the rights of accused are fully respected by trial chambers and uh, uh, when an accused feels his rights have not been ensured, he has the possibility of seeking uh, a remedy on appeal uh, without waiting the uh, rendering of the judgment, the final judgment. Uh, we have before the tribunal on appeals a number of interlocutory appeals uh, concerning uh, stages of the procedure, and but especially the rights of the, uh, the accused. Um, the accused may not be convicted for acts that were not considered criminal under international law at the time they were committed. This is the principle of legality, the nullum crimen sine legge principle that has to be fully, uh, fully respected. Um, second, no person may be tried before a national court and the ICTI for the same crime unless the national court characterized the crime as ordinary, not as an international crime, 
or the national proceedings were not impartial or independent or were designed to shield the accused from international prosecution or there was no diligent prosecution. Uh, an accused has the right to be informed promptly and in detail in a language uh, he understands of the nature and cause of the charges brought. Uh, this means, for instance, that an indictment which would be impermissibly vague would lead to the acquittal of the accused without waiting the end of the uh, trial. Um, one uh, thing we have to uh, indicate is that uh, an accused is afforded the right to have adequate time and facilities for preparation of his defense. The right to have the witnesses examined against him, right to counsel, and protection against self-incrimination. Now, this has led on many occasions to lengthy trials because of the language of the accused. We have to bear in mind that if all the uh, briefs, if all the documents have to be translated into the language of the accused in order that the accused is able to be fully informed to prepare his defense or to advise counsel to prepare the defense, uh, this requires uh, uh, time, this requires uh, uh, resources to, um, to put the accused uh, in, the, in the condition, the position to exercise his, uh, uh, his rights. Uh, let me uh, turn uh, to the jurisprudence of the uh, tribunal. Um, the most important achievement of the ICTY, in my view, uh, together with uh, its sister institution, that's the ICTR, the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, the two tribunals form a, a single system in that they have in common the appeals chamber. So uh, the appeal chamber is uh, one appeal chamber for the two courts and uh, has the task of ensuring uh, uh, coherence of the case law of the two, uh, of the two tribunals. Um, I was saying the <coughs> most important achievement has been uh, uh, that of developing and effectively enforcing an entire body of international humanitarian law governing conflict situations put into place following World War II. Uh, uh, when the tribunal first commenced uh, its judicial activities, there was little international jurisprudence available. Some guidance was provided uh, by the interpretation of the Fourth Hague Convention respecting the laws and customs war on land and its regulations, as well as the International Military Tribunal Charter during the Nuremberg trials. However, in many instances, the tribunal has had to determine the elements of a number of crimes under customary international law often providing a detailed and focused examination of the law's formation. Uh, consequently, the ICTY has made uh, significant strides in clarifying the scope 
and interpretation of uh, fundamental concepts and norms of international criminal uh, law. Um, the ICTY has now a rich body of jurisprudence, both substantive and procedural, which will certainly be indispensable for the future enforcement of international humanitarian law in other jurisdictions, both domestic and international. Uh, I believe that uh, no future war crime cases will be tried without some guidance from the ICTY. And I would like to <coughs> highlight just a few among the many ICTY's uh, jurisprudence, uh, jurisprudential accomplishments. First, uh, um, a prerequisite to triggering the tribunal's jurisdiction is the existence of an armed conflict. Unlike what uh, is uh, uh, indicated in the statute of the uh, International Criminal Court uh, in 1998, the tribunal's jurisdiction cannot be exercised also over crimes against uh, humanity if there is not a situation of conflict. In peacetime, the tribunal would have no uh, jurisdiction. Uh, through uh, the jurisprudence, of course, the tribunal had as the first task to define the features of armed conflict. When are we having an armed conflict? In order to distinguish a conflict for mere internal disturbances, for instance, or uh, uh, in order to define the conditions upon which to conclude uh, that an armed conflict of an international character has arisen. Uh, the tribunal has jurisdiction over conflicts both international and non-international, but certain provisions apply only. Article 2, for instance, war crimes applies only to international conflicts, while Article 3 dealing uh, of the statute dealing with the laws and customs of uh, war may relate also to uh, internal uh, conflicts. In, um, in a related vein, the tribunal's decision in the Aleksovsky case clarified the scope of uh, uh, protected persons under Article 4 of the first Geneva Convention, another prerequisite to attract the tribunal jurisdiction in respect of grave breaches. Um, Article 2 of the statute refers to the serious violations of the 1949 Geneva Conventions, and uh, the notion of protected persons is essential to, um, to deal with this uh, matter. Uh, it's interesting that in Alessovsky, the tribunal concluded that the expression in Article 2 of the statute should be interpreted broadly to afford as much protection as possible to the civilian population. Um, accordingly, it recognized uh, the victimization of Bosnian Muslim by Bosnian Serbs, despite the fact that uh, uh, both technically share the same nationality. And in, in according to the convention, in principle, the nationality should be different. But for the purposes 
of deciding whether there was a, a conflict and whether these were protected persons, this was the decision that was taken by the appeals chamber in this uh, case. Now coming to specific offenses, um, I certainly cannot deal with all of them uh, in light of the uh, uh, sheer volume of the case law of the tribunal so far. So I will focus on some of the offenses of certain magnitude or of certain importance for uh, uh, the case law of the uh, tribunal. And I will refer to genocide first, to persecution, to deportation, to terror as a war crime, that uh, uh, to certain uh, gender crimes, as well as to some other developments uh, relating to international humanitarian law. Uh, let me first uh, uh, talk of genocide. Um, as it was uh, enunciated in the Yelizic appeal judgment, the perpetrator of genocide must have specific intent. Uh, dolus specialis, to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group as such. Proof of the specific intent may be inferred from facts and circumstances in the absence of direct explicit evidence. In the, the Kirstich case, the appeal chamber held that uh, customary international law limits the definition of genocide to those acts seeking the physical or biological destruction of all or part of the group. So it is essential that uh, the intent of the perpetrator is to destroy physically or biologically the, uh, the targeted uh, group. Um, in Kirsish also, the appeal chamber considered for the first time uh, in history, I think, the issue of what it means to intend to destroy a group in part under Article 4 of the statute, which Article 4 is reproducing uh, literally the genocide convention and customary international law on this, on this issue. Um, the appeal chamber concluded that it must be a substantial part of the group. For uh, the purposes of determining whether a substantial part has been targeted, the appeal chamber found, and I quote, uh, that in addition to the numeric size of the targeted population or the targeted portion of the population, its prominence within the group can be a useful consideration. If a specific part of the group is emblematic of the overall group or is essential to its survival, that may support a finding that the part qualifies as substantial within the meaning of Article 4. In other terms, this is important because uh, uh, prima facie, one would think that a substantial part can be defined only in uh, uh, as far as the size of the uh, of that portion of the population is uh, uh, considered. 
the the main uh, crime that has been uh, dealt with by the uh, tribunal is the crime of persecution, uh, which is uh, a, a, a crime that uh, was foreshadowed in the Nuremberg trials and in other proceedings after the Second World War, but was not truly developed until the conflicts in the former Yugoslavia and the subsequent cases before the tribunal, before the ICTY, uh, which uh, um, made uh, the work of the tribunal on this crime particularly difficult because uh, the, there was not much experience, uh, no much practice that could help in defining the crime under customary law. Um, from its very cases, the, I'm referring to Tadic, to the famous Tadic case, to Erdemovic, the tribunal was uh, faced with the crime of persecutions and uh, uh, tackled various aspects of this uh, uh, crime, uh, which has been dealt with uh, uh, up to now in uh, over 20 different cases. So it's a constant crime that comes before the uh, tribunal, which each decision, the contour of the crime have gained uh, substance, have gained uh, clarity. Um, let me refer to some of these uh, features. One of the most complex issues in relation to persecution is what underlying acts it encompasses. The, the mens rea of persecution is clear, it's discrimination on political, racial or religious grounds. The actus reus is constituted by an underlying act which must be a denial of a fundamental human rights laid down in international law and considered in isolation or in conjunction with other acts must constitute conduct of the same gravity as other crimes provided by Article 5 of the status with deals with crimes against humanity. This means essentially that the underlying conduct, even considered in conjunction with other acts, must constitute conduct of equivalent gravity to crimes as murder, extermination, enslavement, deportation, imprisonment, torture. Um, the ICTY has clarified that under customary international law, such underlying conduct, although it has to be equivalent to a crime of the, uh, of the kind I have just mentioned, does not need to be a crime in itself under international law. This was made clear in various cases like Kupreskic, Kronielac, Kvokcha. Um, on the other hand, of course, not every single act of discrimination which constitutes a denial of a fundamental right will amount to persecution as a crime for not every conduct will reach the necessary level of gravity. In other terms, 
the court has to assess on each uh, occasion whether the conduct uh, is such as to be uh, that can be regarded as equivalent to one of uh, the crimes as enumerated in Article 5. And if that is the case, uh, this may amount to uh, persecution. In many cases, of course, the underlying conduct is by itself a crime, and uh, this assessment is far, far more uh, easier. But let me refer to one case in which this was difficult. Um, um, I would like to mention in this respect uh, a recent judgment of the appeals chamber in the case uh, Prosecutor versus Nahimana, which uh, is a, a case, uh, was a case before the ICTR, but that the appeal chamber had to deal on, uh, on appeal. Um, the case is better known as the media case. Uh, and relates to two individuals who founded a private radio company and a third individual, an editor-in-chief of a newspaper in Rwanda, who were accused of participating in the genocide of 94 through the control they exerted on the media. After lengthy, complex proceedings, they were recently convicted in Interalia for inciting or aiding and abetting genocide, committing persecution, and aiding and abetting extermination through radio broadcasts and newspaper articles. Uh, this judgment is interesting because uh, the appeal chamber had to clarify the whether hate speech may be an underlying act of persecution. Um, the appeal chamber has taken the position that uh, uh, no doubt hate speech uh, infringes the right to security and to human dignity, so is the denial of a fundamental human rights. And in certain conditions, under certain circumstances, may amount to a persecutory act, which may rise to the level of required gravity as such, or taken in conjunction with other similar infringements. I uh, should add uh, that um, this legal finding is, in my view, firmly based on existing qualifications of uh, the freedom of expression in international law. But, of course, uh, uh, hate speech is, uh, um, uh, some is also a manifestation of the freedom of expression. So the problem is to decide until what, uh, which, which is the border line of hate speech and when hate speech becomes a, a, or may become the underlying act of a, uh, of a crime. Um, but of course, in order to become, uh, to be regarded as a crime of persecution, uh, it, it is necessary that hate speech uh, form part of a widespread and systematic attack against the civilian population, which is one of the conditions for uh, determining the existence of a crime against uh, humanity. So, while normally offensive or otherwise disagreeable speech 
will not form the basis for a conviction for persecutions, it may be that under certain circumstances, faced speech uh, may reach the level um, for uh, being regarded as uh, an element of the crime of uh, persecution. Uh, another interesting issue with persecutions is the interaction between the crime and the laws and customs of war. In general, for example, could an individual accused of uh, inter alia dismissing persons on a discriminatory basis uh, as part of a systematic attack against the, the civilian population plead military necessity as a valid defense? Some cases of this kind have at times uh, come before the ICTY and the ICTRA. Uh, for example, in uh, April 2007, the Appeal Chamber issued uh, a, a significant judgment in the Bjanin case, which uh, touches upon this issue. Um, uh, Bjanin was a member of uh, the Bosnian Serb leadership, intent on creating a separate Bosnian Serb state from which uh, most non-Serb Bosnians uh, would uh, be permanently removed. The Peel Chamber upheld the dismissal of Janin's claim that Article 27 of the Fourth Geneva Convention allowed for the termination of employment of Bosnian Muslims and Croats for security reasons. Let me recall art uh, that Article 27 uh, of the Fourth Geneva Convention reads in the relevant part as follows, I quote, the parties to the conflict may take such measures of control and security in regard to protected persons as may be necessary as a result of the war. So allows for taking measures of control and security in regard to protected persons. They may also result in removing this uh, these people from one side to another, uh, move them to another side. Bjanin essentially maintained that firing dozens of Bosnian Muslims amounted to a legitimate measure of security in times of war in order to protect them. The trial chamber, however, held that concerns of control and security cannot be considered outside of the context of the illegality of the plan uh, to ethnically cleanse the territory claimed by the Bosnian Serb authorities. It was clear from the text uh, of the decisions by local authorities that the real reason for the dismissals was the ethnicity of the individuals involved and not a consideration of protection of these uh, same uh, individuals. So when it is proven that uh, a transfer was made on discriminatory grounds, authorities may not attempt to justify it by invoking control and security concerns. But this gives also an idea of how the uh, question of the interpretation of the Geneva Conventions may be uh, difficult uh, in certain uh, occasions when the Council of the Parties are uh, uh, trying to find 
uh, elements that may help their, uh, their case. Um, let me move on to another uh, topic uh, which is uh, critical in international humanitarian law, um, deportation and forcible transfer of population. Uh, deportation and forcible transfer are two conducts uh, often mentioned together, so that uh, doubts have uh, arisen among scholars and in the jurisprudence on whether they should actually not be treated as a single crime. Um, let me note that in the Rome Status of the ICC, Article 7 mentions deportation or forcible transfer of population as a crime against humanity. Article 8 relates uh, to unlawful deportation or transfer as a grave breach of the Geneva Conventions. And Article 8 again in another paragraph refers to ordering the displacement of the civilian populations for reasons related to the conflict unless the security of the civilians involved or imperative military necessity so demand. And uh, they define this, uh, the, this provision defines it as a violation of the laws of war applicable to non-international armed conflicts. So in the laws, in the conventions, uh, there is not much uh, distinction made between deportation and forcible transfer. Are they to be regarded two different crimes or is the same crime? The mm, appeals chamber of the ICTY in the Stakic case has carefully analyzed this issue and has come to the conclusion that deportation and forcible transfer are two distinct crimes. One, deportation is the forced displacement of persons beyond the state border, while the forcible transfer is the forced displacement within one country, within, one, uh, the, within the borders of one country. Um, and this uh, distinction applies both to uh, the two crimes as war crimes and as crimes against humanity. Uh, because uh, deportation as a crime against humanity developed out of deportation as a war crime as a way of extending the, the scope of the crime protection to civilians of the same nationality of the perpetrator. What is important in this Taki judgment is uh, the realization that in contemporary conflicts one should not make a formalistic distinction between the jure state borders and de facto state borders. Um, as the appeal chamber uh, did put it, under certain circumstances, displacement across a de facto border may be sufficient to amount to deportation. Uh, this is an analysis to be made on a case-by-case -case basis and relates to the similarities between some de facto borders and formal de jure states borders. So while the distinction of the two crimes uh, lies in the in the 
the fact that uh, deportation requires um, moving people beyond a state border, one has to bear in mind that also de facto borders may be of relevance in this, uh, uh, in this context. Um, one uh, interesting uh, crime that um, is particularly interesting also because uh, may serve, as you will see, the, as the basis for a different crime related to it, is uh, terror, as a war crime. Um, this uh, issue has been dealt with in, in the Galich case related to, uh, to terror. The Galich uh, case uh, concerned uh, the responsibility of uh, uh, a commander, Mr. Galich, of the Bosnian Serb army besieging Sarajevo from 92 to 94. Uh, Mr. Galic was accused uh, uh, for the campaign of shelling and sniping conducted against the civilian population in Sarajevo. The cases required, uh, this case required the elaboration of the elements of the crime of uh, acts of threats of violence, the primary purpose of which is to spread terror among the civilian population. And this was a, a, a crime that had never been adjudicated by an international tribunal prior to the Galish case. Um, one of the important features of the case was the analysis of whether such a conduct is prohibited and criminalized under customary international law. Um, the trial chamber uh, convicted uh, Mr. Uh, Galich for the crime relying on treaty law. The appeal chamber affirmed this jurisdiction of the crime of terror, however, on the basis of customary law, of the customary nature of the prohibition of terror against the civilian population, whose legal basis can in turn be found in Article 51, Paragraph 2 of the of Additional Protocol 1 to the Geneva Conventions and Article 13.2 of Additional Protocol 2. The, uh, so the appeal chamber had to decide that uh, um, these articles in the protocols uh, were, uh, had their basis in customary law. Uh, protocols cannot be applied as treaty law because they are not mentioned in the statute uh, like the Geneva Conventions. So, uh, so uh, the provisions of the protocols can be applied only if they reflect international customary law, and sometimes the customary or treaty nature of some of these provisions may be uh, disputed in legal uh, doctrine. Uh, but the appeal chamber in this case is noted that this article represented an affirmation of existing customer international law at the time of their adoption. That was in 1977. We had to peruse the preparatory works 
of the additional protocols to come to that uh, conclusion that the intention of drafts of the protocols was to reflect customary law on this uh, point. Uh, the appeal chamber also agreed that uh, um, in 92-94, when the events uh, occurred, a breach of these rules entailed individual criminal responsibility under customary international uh, law. <coughs> I wish to clarify that uh, <coughs> as to customary international law, the tribunal has always to um, to make uh, conduct a double analysis. One, the first analysis is to uh, verify, to assess whether a conduct is prohibited under international law. But that is not enough to decide that the violation of uh, um, such conduct um, is uh, that the violation of the rule is uh, uh, also a crime. A violation of a prohibition does not per se entail a, a crime under international law. So the, we have to assess also that that prohibition, the violation of that prohibition, amounts to a crime under international law, under customary law. Um, <clears throat> in, in the Gallic case, um, the appeal chamber held that acts or threats of violence constitutive of the crime of terror are not limited to direct attacks or threats of direct attacks against civilians, but may include indiscriminate or disproportionate attacks or threats thereof. In particular, the appeal chamber affirmed that an apparently indiscriminate or disproportionate attack may under certain circumstances qualify as a direct attack, since a direct attack can be inferred from the indiscriminate character of the weapon used or its disproportionate uh, character. This is a particularly important uh, assessment of the peer chamber because it goes directly to the uh, conduct of military operations and so it's particularly uh, significant for assessing the way military operations have to be conducted um, uh, by commanders, by military uh, commanders. Of course, uh, the crime exists uh, if the acts of threats of violence are committed with a specific intent to spread terror among the civilian uh, populations. Uh, however, the appeal chamber affirmed that the actual terrorization of the civilian population is not an element of the crime, and that the existence of another purpose in addition to that of spreading terror behind the acts of threats does not preclude the change, the charge of uh, uh, spreading uh, terror. Um, let me uh, conclude on this uh, crime of terror by emphasizing that uh, this crime is limited to the attempted terrorization of civilian population in times of armed conflict and should be distinguished 
from terrorism in time of place. But in any event, the two issues are clearly linked to a certain extent. And one notion, clarifying the notion of terror in, uh, during a conflict, during an armed conflict, may assist in developing a, a notion of, uh, uh, for a crime of terrorism in time, in time of peace. Um, the question of defining a crime of terrorism in time of peace is an open question. Is a question that has been dealt with by uh, the Assembly of States parties uh, when they discussed the statute for the International Criminal Court. Is a question that may come back again for uh, um, for recognition and for elaboration uh, as an international crime, as a crime against humanity. But views are still very much divided on this, uh, on this uh, matter. Um, I will not deal with other specific crimes, but I have to uh, indicate that the ICTY has made notable advances in redressing gender crimes by advancing international law pertaining to legal treatment and punishment of sexual violence during armed conflicts, which has become one of the current features of uh, modern armed conflicts. This uh, development is seen as particularly positive since uh, gender crimes uh, were not addressed at all during the Nuremberg and Tokyo proceedings. Uh, the ICTY, along uh, with the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, have uh, rendered uh, judgments recognizing rape and other forms of sexual violence as crimes against humanity, as war crimes, or even as instruments of uh, genocide, as well as a means of persecutions, enslavement, and as a form of uh, torture. Uh, although the crime of rape has been kept distinguished from the crime of torture, and we have cases in which accused have been uh, convicted for both, uh, for both crimes uh, concerning the same facts, because the elements of this crime has been regarded as uh, uh, distinct. Um, in addition to substantiating uh, existing international law, uh, the tribunal has developed uh, legal doctrines and standards specific to international criminal tribunals. It's uh, impossible to deal with all of them in, uh, in a short time, but uh, I would like at least uh, to mention um, the development of the joint criminal enterprise theory of individual criminal responsibility, particularly in the Tadic, Kvokcha, Abjani judgments. Under the theory of joint criminal enterprise, persons can be found individually responsible for the commission of a crime as part of a plurality of co-perpetrators who act pursuant to a common purpose involving the commission of a crime under the statute. In the course of the Tadish proceedings in which the theory was first articulated, 
the appeal chamber reasoned that the very nature of many international crimes, which are committed most commonly in wartime situations, do not result from the criminal propensity of single individuals, but constitute manifestations of collective criminality. Although some, only some members of the group physically perpetrate the criminal act, the participation and the contribution of other members of the group is often vital to facilitating the commission of the crime, and uh, the moral gravity of that participation is often no less than the participation of the physical uh, perpetrator. Um, and in the last years, in the case of the tribunal, participation in a joint criminal enterprise became the mode of responsibility most frequently applied in the ICTY, as it is reflected in the Stakish appeal judgment, the Krasnik and Martish trial judgment, just to mention some of uh, these uh, cases. Um, many uh, procedural standards have been also clarified by the case law of the tribunal. Uh, <clears throat> one that uh, was particularly difficult to assess because it does not have equivalents normally in domestic criminal law is uh, how to deal with uh, additional evidence submitted on appeal. Uh, in many cases, uh, domestic uh, courts, uh, uh, domestic judiciaries send the case back for reconsideration by a trial chamber. Um, the tribunal uh, rules of procedure and evidence allow for submitting additional evidence on appeal, and in some cases, the uh, volume of this additional evidence on appeal has been quite uh, substantial. I will just mention the Blaskic case. The Blaskic case is the case in which um, the volume of additional evidence brought on appeal was more substantive. It's the, the case in which we had more uh, evidence on appeal. Um, the, which is the standard an appeal chamber will use when additional evidence is uh, submitted only on appeal. Uh, <clears throat> the appeal chamber has come to the conclusion that in situations like this, instead of applying uh, a standard of appeal which would just be based on whether a trial chamber could have come to a certain conclusion, would uh, decide the case uh, in a certain way only if the appeal chamber is itself convinced beyond reasonable doubt as to the guilt of the accused before confirming a conviction on, uh, on appeal. In other terms, if uh, the appeal chamber has to deal with uh, a sheer volume of evidence, cannot simply rely on what a trial chamber could have done because it is the appeal chamber that hears the evidence and so has to, come, uh, to, uh, to apply a standard of uh, um, beyond reasonable doubt conviction. Um, 
And in other cases, of course, uh, the problem has not been so evident because the new, the additional evidence was, uh, was dealing, was regarding, concerning only a particular um, segment uh, submitted only on appeal. Uh, <coughs> the appeal chamber has come to the conclusion that in situations like this, instead of applying uh, a standard of appeal which would just be based on whether a trial chamber could have come to a certain conclusion, would uh, decide the case uh, in a certain way only if the appeal chamber is itself convinced beyond reasonable doubt as to the guilt of the accused before confirming a conviction on, uh, on appeal. In other terms, if uh, the appeal chamber has to deal with uh, a sheer volume of evidence, cannot simply rely on what a trial chamber could have done, because it is the appeal chamber that hears the evidence and has to, come, uh, to, uh, to apply a standard of uh, um, beyond reasonable doubt conviction. Um, the appeal chamber has um, underscored that in cases like this, when there is a sheer volume of additional evidence, if the chamber had to apply a lower standard, a could standard, then the outcome would be that neither in the first instance nor on appeal would a conclusion of guilt based on the totality of the evidence relied upon in the case assessed in the light of correct legal standard be reached by either chamber beyond reasonable doubt. So that's why we were forced to uh, adopt a higher standard in these uh, cases. Uh, but there are many other standards that are important and on which it would be difficult to um, go into details now. Uh, relating to the admission of statement given by one accused before his trial, uh, a statement given against a co-accused in the same trial, for instance. The Peel Chamber has clarified that in such, uh, such a statement is in principle admissible, but uh, uh, that no conviction may be entered if that statement is not cooperated with other uh, evidence. Um, one final topic, if I have the time that I can uh, take up uh, uh, here, is uh, that uh, the, this case law and uh, the functioning of the ICTY, the effective function of the ICTY, has been uh, a sort of uh, catalyst for the proliferation of international and mixed criminal courts and tribunals in various parts of the world in recent years. Um, the creation of the, and the success, I would say, of the ICTY marked an increased interest within the global community for, in the administration of international criminal justice. There is uh, little doubt that uh, the ad hoc tribunals for the former Yugoslavia and Rwanda accelerated the elaboration of the statute of a universal criminal court, the International Criminal Court. But it's also undeniable that the proliferation of judicial bodies supported by the international community did not end with the creation of the ICC. Uh, 
as demonstrated with the mixed, uh, the establishment of mixed panels by the UNMEC in Kosovo, the special court of Sierra Leone in 2002, the special panels for serious crimes for East Timor in 2002, the extraordinary chambers in the courts for Cambodia in 2003, which have recently began to work, and lastly, the establishment of the tribunal for Lebanon. Um, this um, uh, proliferation uh, may continue, notwithstanding the existence of a universal court like the International Criminal uh, Court, at least until the ICC will uh, really be universal with the participation of all, uh, of all uh, states. Um, uh, I would like to stress uh, that uh, it is now commonplace to consider that uh, when crimes are committed during an armed conflict or in other exceptional circumstances, justice should prevail and perpetrators should be brought to justice. This is a novel understanding of the relevance of international law because uh, never before in uh, uh, in the course of human history, uh, there was an understanding, a shared understanding, that uh, uh, this is uh, morally justified and useful to prevent further uh, crimes. Uh, <clears throat> Let me also say that um, the existence of the ICTY has been critical not only for establishing uh, other tribunals and for uh, uh, affirming the idea that justice must be done when international crimes are committed, but uh, has been uh, uh, the existence of the ICTY has been extremely important also to uh, improve the capacity of domestic courts in this respect. Um, as part of our mandate to uh, conclude the work of the Tribunal within a certain deadline, the Tribunal has uh, started, with the authorization of the Security Council, of course, to uh, put in place a mechanism to refer back cases of low-level perpetrators to domestic jurisdiction in the region. And uh, uh, we have sent, referred back some cases, in particular to the uh, courts of Bosnia and Herzegovina, to Croatia, to Serbia, allowing the local tribunals to um, deal with these cases in, uh, uh, under the uh, sort of supervision of the, uh, of the tribunal. Uh, furthermore, the number of uh, dossiers containing investigative materials have been sent by the prosecutor back to the region in order that local prosecutors make, uh, may deal with these cases, because the Security Council decided in 2004 that no more indictments should be brought before the ICTY and the ICTR. Um, now, um, 
the number of uh, uh, alleged perpetrators is uh, far more substantive than uh, significant than 161 that were brought before the tribunal. Um, estimates uh, uh, situate this number to thousands that will have to be dealt by local jurisdictions. And that's why through this mechanism of referring some cases and monitoring the work of the local courts, the tribunal has tried to establish a sort of partnership with local jurisdictions to transfer to local jurisdictions some know-how on how to deal with international cases. That may be extremely important to uh, increase the capacity of local jurisdiction and eventually to have local courts deal with uh, uh, international, uh, international cases. Um, in concluding, I would like to say that I feel that uh, international criminal jurisdiction in general should be exercised only when domestic jurisdictions are not able to deal with cases. In a way, the international community uh, should resist the temptation of uh, shifting uh, uh, criminal jurisdiction from national courts to the international level. That will never work at the end. The, the international system will never be uh, able to deal with all the situations. Uh, should reserve its jurisdiction to cases in which domestic courts are not uh, able to deal with the case. It may happen during a conflict, but as soon as there is the possibility of sending the cases back, they should be dealt by, uh, by domestic courts close to the victims, close to where the events occurred. And uh, the, I believe the legacy of uh, the ICTY will be uh, to have been able, perhaps, uh, hopefully, to um, increase the capacity of local courts and uh, help local courts to uh, do their job and protect themselves the uh, international uh, humanitarian law and human rights.